All right. Well, good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. You're awake, and I like it. All right. (laughs) Well, hey. Oh, I will. I will do my best uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hey, this morning we are continuing our series through Unfolding Grace, and so... Uh, if my math is correct, it might not be, but if it is, then we've only got five more Sundays until we have finished up our 40-week journey, which is pretty cool. Um, and my hope for you, for those of y'all who've been following along on Sundays, who've been reading the Unfolding Grace book with us over the last 35 weeks, is that, uh, man, that it has been just a blessing to you. Uh, my, my hope is that over the last 35 weeks, you've come to see with more clarity and wonder the story of God's unfolding grace throughout the Bible and throughout history. And my hope is that through this, you would see that this is not some arbitrary story arc, but it is the story of reality. And consequently, it is your story. Right? We may not be the main characters in the story, but we are still participants in God's story of redemption. And so as we approach um, this part of the narrative uh, that we're going to be in this week, uh, where the gospel of Jesus begins to burst through the seams and begins to infiltrate the Gentile world, my desire is that you would sense more than ever your place in this story and the part that you and I can play even now. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to Acts chapter Chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We'll be camping out in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts 9, verses 1 through 19 this week. Now, I would imagine for many that this is a familiar story. In fact, uh, I had lunch with a couple last Sunday, and this particular story, this particular narrative came up in conversation like completely organically two different times, like without any me prompting it. Like this passage just came up in conversation two different times, and I think I think there's a couple reasons for that. One, I think it comes up in conversation um, because it is a cataclysmic narrative in the story of God's unfolding grace. Um Throughout history, I mean, um, Acts 9 and Acts 10, in those two chapters, Luke gives us two very distinct, massively important stories that set the trajectory for the remainder of the book of Acts, as well as for human history. But secondly, I think it came up and it continues to come up, and we're so familiar with this story because for many of us, it's personal. Like we read this story in Acts 9 and for many of us, we see ourselves in the narrative. For for many of us, maybe we're, we're praying that God would do in the hearts of people that we love who maybe don't know Jesus yet. We're praying, God, would you, would you do this? What the thing that we're going to read about in this narrative, God, would you do this in their hearts and in their lives? It is, and I can say this uh, with all sincerity, without overstating or over-exaggerating, this is a significant, one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. And so before we jump in, I do want to share um, something with you. Now, I would assume at this point we are all um, <clears throat> well aware of the uh, the chaos and the devastation that's taking place in the country of Afghanistan, and and I'm I'm willing to bet that there are no shortage of opinions on the matter in this room alone. But what I want to try and do is direct our attention for a moment away from maybe some of the conversations we might be tempted to have in regards to that, and focus our attention on the Church of Jesus Christ in Afghanistan. 
So last Tuesday, so almost two weeks ago, there was a statement released by the leader of the underground church ministering to Christians in Afghanistan who goes by the alias of Pastor K. Maybe you've seen this statement, maybe you've read it, maybe you haven't, and so I'm going to read it for you now. Um, In this statement and in these interviews, he's giving a firsthand ground-level report of what's happening in the country, specifically with the church as the Taliban continues to grow in power. And he writes this, he says, The Taliban has a hit list of known Christians they are targeting to pursue and kill. The U.S. embassy is defunct and there is no longer a safe place for believers to take refuge. All borders to neighboring countries are closed and all flights to and from have been halted with the exception of private planes. People are fleeing into the mountains looking for asylum. They are fully reliant on God who is the only one who can and will protect them. The Taliban are going door-to-door taking women and children. The people must mark their house with an X if they have a girl over 12 years old so the Taliban can take them. If they find a young girl and the house was not marked, they will execute the entire family. If a married woman, 25 years old or older, has been found, the Taliban promptly will kill her husband, do whatever they want to her, and then sell her as a sex slave. He goes on to say that we're hearing from reliable sources that the Taliban demands people's phones, and if they find a downloadable Bible on your device, they will kill you immediately. Now, I share this with you this morning for two reasons. First, to say that as the body of Christ, we should make it a priority to pray for the church in Afghanistan. Like we need to cover our brothers and sisters in prayer. And then additionally, if we have the means available to us, consider looking into the ways that we can love and serve and care for those who have fled their homes looking for refuge. The second reason I share this is to say that what's happening in Afghanistan is not an isolated event. Specifically, the persecution of the Christian church, of Jesus' church, is not an isolated event. This is not the first time in history that this has happened, and it will not be the last. And all the while, God is faithful, right? He has been and will continue to be the Lord over His church, He continues even now to love his church and build his church. The gospel and the kingdom of God continue to go out and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. See, Jesus has a way of flipping the script in the most dire circumstances to protect his people, to advance his kingdom, and to bring glory and honor to his own name. It's happening right now in our lifetime. I believe that. And it happened in our narrative today. So as we head into Acts chapter 9, we've been reading through the book of Acts and reading through Unfolding Grace, and here's what we've seen. We've seen the gospel of Jesus go forth, right? Like it started in Acts 1, Jesus, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he told his disciples that they would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that they would receive power from him when he came and indwelt them, that they should then go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, it actually happens. The Holy Spirit descends upon the church, fills every follower of Jesus, and then we see that 3,000 plus people are welcomed into the kingdom of God and the church is born. 
And then all the way up to Acts 7, we see that the message is continuing to go out. And then you get to Acts chapter 7 and you get the story of Stephen who's stoned for proclaiming that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and temple. Like he gives this profound biblical theological articulation to the truth that God has always been and will always be with his people in a deeply personal and intimate way. And then Stephen's death sparks what would then become this aggressive crusade against the early church. And this crusade against the church would then send countless believers running from Jerusalem and into the surrounding cities. Now, keep in mind, these brothers and sisters who are fleeing Jerusalem are spirit-filled, spirit-empowered believers equipped with the gospel of Jesus, right? And so while they're being forced out, they are taking the gospel with them wherever they go. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read about Philip evangelizing the African eunuch and the Samaritans. And as we read these stories in Acts, I don't know about you, but if you read the the first eight chapters of Acts, you just kind of go through them. It's like you cannot help but get the sense that like something's about to happen. Like, like the gospel's continuing to go out. The kingdom's continuing to grow. It's becoming more and more diverse ethnically. It's like the seams are about to burst. Or like the floodgates are about to just blow, like you just get the sense, like what is God about to do? And then we open up to Acts chapter 9 and it starts out like this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about anybody else, but when I was reading this week, the first thought that came to mind was like, man, I get some real Genesis 3 vibes right here, right? So if you know Genesis 1 and 2, it's the story of God creating the cosmos, and it's, it's I mean, it is spectacular, right? It's, it's beautiful, it's perfect, there's peace, there's shalom, there's harmony, there's no sin. I mean, it's incredible. And then you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, and God's like, hey, just enjoy it. Like, it's yours. Take it, enjoy it. It's for you. So they get, like, they're in paradise with each other and God. Like, they get to enjoy this, this perfect creation and the presence of God without any hindrance to them. And then you open up, you flip the page. Genesis 3 verse 1 goes that now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Like it's, it's shocking. It's startling. It's, it's meant to, like when we read it, to kind of jolt our system. And the same is true here. You finish reading Acts 8. Philip is carried away by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of questions about what that means. But he's carried away by the Spirit to go and preach the gospel to Caesarea. And you're like, man, this is awesome. And then you open up and, and Luke just slams the brakes. And the language that Luke is using here. Uh, if you were to go back to the Greek and, and kind of study it a little bit, um, like the, the image, like when he talks about breathing threats against the church, it, like there's this image of like a wild boar for my hunters out there. You, you don't like pigs on your property, right? Because what do they do? They destroy everything. They just ravage it, right? And so you've got this image of Saul as like a wild animal destroying everything in his path. This man Saul, the one leading the crusade against the church, he's violent, he's persistent, he's destructive, and he is completely bent on seeing an end to the way, which was this 
early designation for Christians, right? People who followed Jesus, who, who took his words, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that to get to the Father, you have to go through the Son. They took that and they were like, man, we are following Jesus. We are a part of the way, right? His, and saw his mission is simple. Go to Damascus, snuff out every Christian hiding there, drag them from their shelters, bring them to Jerusalem where they will be tried and most likely killed. Sounds familiar, right? And Saul isn't doing this on his own authority. He didn't go rogue. In fact, the high priest has given him the authority to do so. Now, like the dynamics in Rome with, uh, with the Jewish people, with Judaism, it was essentially, you know, the Romans were cool letting the Jews kind of handle their own affairs so long as they didn't infringe upon what Rome was doing, right? So you kind of handle your own stuff. We'll stay here. We'll leave you alone. But if it becomes a mess, then we're going to intervene. And so as far as they're concerned, this is... This is on the up and up. He's got the authority to go search the synagogues to find the believers in Damascus and bring them back. And so this statement, what, what these two verses, they set the context for us as readers. Um, so they, they do give us some detail. They're just, Luke is describing the facts, but at the same time, I think it's meant to evoke in us like emotion, Like there's an emotional response, a healthy emotional response that should come with reading these two verses. I mean, think about it. Families will be ripped apart. Like followers of Jesus will be killed. The church of Jesus is under attack and the one leading the charge is not gentle. He is zealous. And in his own mind, he is righteous in his pursuits. So then we get to verse three. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so what we see is Saul and his crew, they leave Jerusalem and they begin their journey towards Damascus, which was about 150 miles away. So if you think a journey from here to Dallas, give or take, that's about how long this trip was going to be. And many believe that it took them about a week to get there. So if that's the case, here's what I want to know. What was that week like? Like, what did they talk about? I mean, a week's a long time. I went on a road trip to Chicago. That's 16-ish hours. Um, I ran out of things to talk about. So what are you doing for a week, right? I mean, they're, they're traveling together. Like, would they have just talked about the weather? Would they have talked about their favorite foods? I mean, would they have potentially talked about the law? I mean, Instagram, TikTok, Spotify, Netflix, podcast, audiobooks, those things weren't around. So what are they doing? How are they, how are they using their time? What are they talking about? Would they have talked about the law? Would they have thrown some theological ideas out there and kind of grappled with those for a week? Would they have, have just pondered and questioned and speculated as to when the real Messiah would come? Or, or did they just kind of talk about how much they hate the way? Like, did they spend a week just stirring each other up in their hatred for the very people they're going to go kill? The answer is, I don't know. We don't know what the journey was like, but what we do know is that before they could complete it, 
there was an unexpected interruption. As Paul approaches the city of Damascus, which was this beautiful modern metropolis situated on two rivers, three trade routes, and then had like three mountain ranges protecting the city. I mean, I can imagine it was a beautiful sight, right? As they're approaching this, this diverse metropolis, if you will, this city, at 12 o'clock noon, they're disrupted by a light. But not just any light. It was recognizably supernatural. It was otherworldly. It, it was all-encompassing, right? Brighter than the sun. And the text says that it, it shone around Paul. So when I read that, it gives me the impression that, that it just swallowed him up, right? That it rattled his senses, that there was nowhere for Paul to run. It was everywhere. And with seemingly no other option, Paul fell to the ground. I imagine just shaking in fear, And from within this all-encompassing light, Saul hears a voice. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, keep in mind, Saul was not an idiot, okay? Uh, He was young. He was zealous. He was a Pharisee in training. He studied under Gamaliel, who we met in Acts chapter 5. And by his own testimony, he was advancing in Judaism beyond all the other fools his age. Like he was outpacing them. So he was no theological slouch. He knew his Bible. In fact, I would, I would imagine that he'd be the guy in men's Bible study that if he was in your group, you'd be frustrated by how quickly he got it. Like he's the guy that every question, he raises his hand, he nails the answer, and you're like, oh, send him to Rick's group. I'm tired of this guy, right? Like just send him somewhere else, right? Like he's, he's that guy. And so um, he would have the comprehension, he would have the knowledge to know in the moment that whatever this is and whoever this is, this is not simply human, this is divine. This is supernatural. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And while I was reading this this week, I found myself wondering, how long did this last? Because it reads like a, just a moment, right? You kind of read it, it happens, and then you move on in the story. But, but like, how long was Saul surrounded by the light? Like, how long was he forced to kind of sit in the presence of Jesus? Like, how long, like, what, did he hear, was it loud? Or was it, was it like deafening silence, like, like, was every other noise muted out by the brightness of God's glory and, and the authority of Jesus' voice? Like, what was that experience like in the light? And what, what about these travelers, right? Like, what are they experiencing? I mean, it says they heard a voice, but we know from other accounts of, of Saul that they didn't understand, right? They saw something, but whatever it was, it wasn't Jesus. It's like their experience was remarkably similar and wholly different than Saul's. And yet you have to admit that the aftermath of this event without any resolution is pretty devastating, isn't it? Like Saul stands up probably disoriented and he's lost all ability to see. And while before I can imagine that Saul was walking with some swagger, with some pomp, with some some power and pride on his way to Damascus, now he walks hand in hand with his companions, slowly, wholly dependent on his partners to guide his every single step. 
I love how John Stott describes this in his commentary. He says, He who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess, a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded, a captive of the very Christ he opposed. The text says that he remained this way for three days without food or drink. Now, there's some speculation. Why did he not eat or drink? Um, I just have to wonder if it's because Saul was a man convicted. Because like, I just wonder if Saul was a man grieved to his core in this moment. Like, can you imagine that type of grief that would come as a result of this? Like before you were so self-assured that you are doing the work of God, that this is righteous only to find out, hey, you're the bad guy. Like only to, to recall to your mind all of the families that you had separated, right? All of the people that you most likely had killed. Like, do you think in this moment as Saul's grieving that he might have pictured the face of Stephen glowing with the glory of God as he takes his last breath? As an aside, church, we should grieve our sin, shouldn't we? Like we should never feel so comfortable with our own sin that we lose the ability to mourn our own idolatry and rebellion against God. Now, here's the difference between us and Saul, at least right now. That Saul was a man caught in the middle, right? This seems to be the conviction, the weight of the conviction of God on Saul's soul without the hope of redemption. He's a man caught in the middle, And praise God that his story doesn't end there. And church, praise God that our story doesn't end there. So Jesus initiates the final steps in the plan to redeem Saul and to set in motion the gospel's movement into the nations. He speaks to a disciple named Ananias. That's what it says, starting in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done uh, to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I have to wonder as I'm reading this, who was Ananias? Like, who is this cat? What was he doing? What was, like, what was he doing when Jesus spoke to him in a, in a vision? Like directly, was he eating a meal? Was he praying? Was he working? Was he at home? Like where, where was Ananias? What, what kind of disruption did the tender and authoritative voice of Jesus cause to Ananias' day? 
Like a friend of mine uh, from college, he preached at his church a few weeks ago in, in a different passage, but he described these types of moments as holy disruptions of Jesus. And I love that, right? This moment where, I mean, who like I'm assuming Ananias is doing what he's always done and Jesus shows up and changes his day, changes his life. It's a holy disruption, right? So Jesus speaks, tells him, go to a house on the street called Straight and there you're gonna find a man named Saul of Tarsus that he's expecting your arrival and Ananias clearly needs no introduction, He doesn't need any background. He's well aware of who this man is. He seems to be a native of Damascus, but you have to wonder if that's the case, like how many Jewish refugees has uh, Ananias met at the synagogue lately? Like, Like how many block parties has Ananias attended where these new foreign neighbors, these followers of the way, the brothers and sisters in Christ, they've they've come and they've told stories of them fleeing from Jerusalem to this new city to relocate because a zealous man named Saul of Tarsus sought their heads or captured their friends or ripped their fathers and their mothers away from their family. How many, how many people has Ananias wept with as they recounted the story of Stephen and as they talked about the look on Saul's face as he just approved of this execution standing over the garments of the people who killed Stephen. Like as we read this, you can just feel the apprehension in Ananias, can't you? Yeah, Lord, I I know who he is. I know, like I've heard the stories, I know who he is, I know why he's here, Lord, him? I mean, really, him? Him, right? And the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And and here's what's just mind-boggling, is that in faith and obedience, Ananias goes. And as he enters the house, I can imagine Ananias was just filled with emotion. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was some sort of rage. Maybe he was filled with fear and anxiety as he steps in. Maybe, just maybe, he was filled with empathy and compassion as he walked into the room and saw Saul likely on the floor, malnourished, dehydrated, skin and bones, weak. Like, I, I mean, this is just me. I wonder if at any point Ananias, when he walked in the house, just thought, man, you know what? I could end this right now. Look at him. I could do. I can end it. He can't even see me, helpless and weak. Like uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking back to the story of Peter, right in the Gospels, where Jesus is being arrested and eventually to to go and be crucified. And then you've got Peter, right? He's just pulling out the sword and he just starts swinging, right, and cuts off the ear of the centurion. And immediately after, what does Jesus do? He heals his ear and then he just says, "No more of this." Because in that moment, it was the Father's will that the Son should die for the sins of the world. And here, it was the Father's will that that Saul of Tarsus should live. Because Jesus, or as C.S. Lewis once called him, the hound of heaven, had his eye on Saul. 
So Ananias doesn't come in guns blazing. Rather, he comes in with the grace and mercy of Jesus that he himself had first received resounding on his lips. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to notice the first words to come out of Ananias' mouth. And if you have a pen and you like to circle, I just, man, I'd encourage you to circle it. Two words, very simple. Brother Saul. So while we may not know a lot about Ananias, what we do know is that he stands alone as the first disciple to welcome Saul into the kingdom of God. Welcome home, brother. In a single moment, Saul responds to the gospel. He surrenders his life to Jesus. He's filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He regains his sight. And then before he even takes a bite of food, he makes haste to get baptized as a forgiven, redeemed, regenerated son of God in Jesus Christ. And wouldn't you know it, if you were to read the rest of Acts 9, what you will see is that Saul then goes on and spends the rest of his time in Damascus doing two things, hanging out with his new family, fellowshipping with brothers and sisters, and then going into the synagogues and proclaiming the name of Jesus. Like the people he came to kill, he's, he's preaching the gospel with and among them. And make no mistake, this would be the conversion heard around the world. It would be the first catalyst to God's movement into the Gentile world and into the nations. And if you know the rest of the story, if you're more familiar with your Bibles, you would know that Saul would later be identified as Paul, that he would write more than half of the books that we have in our New Testaments. And then he would go down as the greatest missionary to ever live, and he would die for the gospel just as Jesus said he would. This great persecutor of the church would be an instrument that God would use to change the course of human history, and he served as an instrumental figure in the unfolding grace of God in Christ and continues to do so even today. But as I said before, I want us to see how this story, while unique in many ways, serves as a reminder that we too are a part of God's story of redemption. So I've got three things for you that I want you to take home. You can talk about them at lunch, uh, put them on the fridge, whatever you do. Three things for us to see how we too should participate in God's story. The first is this, it's that Jesus so identifies with his people that the two are as one. So when Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's confronted or, or confounded by these words, why are you persecuting me? Now you could say, well, technically he wasn't because Jesus physically was located at the right hand of the Father. And, and in that sense, yes, he, was, he had ascended, he was with the Father, yes. But in the mind of Christ, it would be impossible to separate Jesus and his church. Because as Saul would later write, as Paul in the book of Romans, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body with Christ. Or in Ephesians, he would say, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, he would say, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Husbands, wives in here, 
engaged folk, people who just read their Bibles. If you come across Ephesians 5, you know that Paul would employ uh, the image of a bride and a groom as he talks about the relationship between Jesus and his church. And listen, marriage, this idea of one man, one woman entering a sacred covenant before God, two becoming one flesh, that predates the New Testament. That's a part of the creation mandate. And Paul, again, not an idiot, he would know that. He would know that. He'd be fully aware of the relationship between a husband and a wife, a bride and a groom. So there is no groom without the bride. There is no husband without the wife. And there is no Jesus without the church. And then if you just read some of Paul's letters in the New Testament, specifically if you camped out in Ephesians and Colossians, you would see statements from Paul like in him, with him, through him, by him, all over the place. Why? Well, it's because it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that tethers us as the church to Jesus Christ himself. And Paul learned that moment one. So for us as the church, this simply means that we should love Christ's church globally and locally, that that we should have an eagerness in us to be a part of his church, to serve his church. We should take extra care to preserve his church and seek the unity of his church. Like to hate his church, to harm his church, or to run from his church is an affront on Jesus himself. And this may not be our mindsets. It clearly isn't the mainstream mindset, but I think based on what I read in scripture and the conversations that I have with people on a regular basis, essential to the Christian life is involvement in a local church. Essential. I I mean, I can just tell you, like in the last two weeks, I've sat with people in my office who have looked me in the face and said, at one point I was growing, now I'm not. I need community. That's what's changed. So I like scripture attests to it, but just ask the people around you who are not in community how badly they want it, how badly they need it, because it's essential to the formation of us as followers of Jesus. We are the church. And for all of her imperfections now, the church belongs to Jesus. Right? She should be protected, cared for, loved, and served, and we should take special care to preserve her until Christ himself returns. The second thing, Paul's salvation is unique in its place and purpose, but God's work in you is similar and equally miraculous. Brothers and sisters, do not look down on your salvation story. Like for a second, Like it's important that when we read this story, we read it in its context as we should every other story in scripture, right? There are things here that are descriptive, but understand brothers and sisters that your salvation is equally as miraculous and supernatural. For example, Saul was an enemy of Jesus. And in Romans 5, we read, so were you and so was I. Saul was rescued out of darkness by the light of Jesus And in 1 Corinthians 4, we see that so were you and so was I. Saul was blinded physically, but also spiritually to the reality of Jesus. And church, so were you. You too were blind in your own heart, writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. 4. Funny how these are all from Paul, right? (laughs) 
Saul was at once filled with the Holy Spirit, and so are you, church. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 6, 19. Saul was chosen despite his rebellion, despite his sin, despite his wickedness, not because he was righteous, but because from eternity past, God had chosen him. He had set his affections on him in Christ. And guess what? That's true of you if you are in Christ. From eternity past, God had his eye on you. We read that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. So if you sit here today as a follower of Jesus, meaning you have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for your sin, that he came back three days later, and that he is the the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for you. He did so on the cross as the the payment for your sin, that he left death dead. And that in him, you have life, you have forgiveness, you're a child of God. If, if you confess that with your mouth, believe that in your heart, understand that your story is no different from Saul's. It was the same sovereign grace of God that was lavished upon you. He chose you, he wooed you, he rescued you. And even now as you sit in these chairs, he is holding you in his hand. And that was a gift that you did not earn but it was freely given, church. And then the third and final thing is that like Ananias, you've been called to go to the least expected and the least deserving that they too might receive God's grace. Now, listen, before we, like, I I hope this kind of stirs you in some way, that the Spirit stirs you in some way. Um, I'm not saying find your way to Afghanistan and evangelize the Taliban. I'm not saying that. Spirit might, and I'd encourage you to obey, but, but that's not what I'm saying, right? I, I think about Ananias, right? And again, who was he? We don't know much other than that he lived in Damascus and Jesus disrupted his day. That's what we know, right? And all he did was go in faith and Holy Spirit empowered obedience. And, he, and what I'm saying to us church is that God has sovereignly placed you where you are Certainly now, but he has placed you where you live. He's placed you where you work. He's placed you where you play. He's placed you in your family. God has sovereignly done that. And he's sovereignly put the people that you interact with, that you live by, that you play with, all of that. He's sovereignly placed them in your life. And he has placed a call on you to go. So go to the family members, the coworkers, the neighbors, the friends who least deserve the gospel, which I understand is a subjective thing because nobody in this room deserves the gospel. I get that. What I'm saying is the people that you're like, them? Yes, even them God has called you to go to. Go and bring the message of grace because listen, the hound of heaven is still on the move. He is building his church. The spirit of the living God is still wooing people to Jesus. Maybe even in this room right now. And church, what a joy it would be to to have a moment where, like, I just want you to imagine, like, I'm sure you've got a face or a name of somebody that you know the Lord's put them in your sphere, he's put them on your heart, you're not sure you want to do it, but you've got a face. Imagine looking them in the eye and being the first to say, welcome home, brother. Welcome home, sis. Welcome to the kingdom. See, I think many of us don't experience this joy because we punt, and I'm guilty of that. 
God's given us a call and we punt it away. And I'm just saying, church, let's stop punting. And instead, let's go as we've been called to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That we can, we can open it and that every time we do, every time we read the words on the page, God, we get to hear from you. We get to meet with you. We get to sit in your presence. Thank you that, that your word, as it goes out, it does not return void, that it sharpens us, it refines us. And God, thank you for community that you've given us uh, the church to, to engage with, to be a part of, God, that we can continue to grow as followers of Jesus among brothers and sisters. I thank you for the story of Saul, this great persecutor of the church who was breathing threats against your people, how you disrupted everything to perform a wonder that was <laughs> seismic in scale. God, here's what I hope, God, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, even now as we reflect on our own stories, God, you would help us to see the way that you, hound of heaven, were, were pursuing us that we would look back and see how the Holy Spirit was wooing us and how every step of the way, it was a miraculous work that you did to, to redeem us, to save us, to bring us into your kingdom, God. And as we look out, God, help us to be a people who go, who see those that we might think them and, and hear you say yes, because they just might be your chosen instrument. Give us the eyes to see him. Give us the heart to go. As we sang earlier, God, we are no longer slaves of fear. Remove the fears that kind of hinder us from living on mission. We pray now as we continue to worship, God, that, that the words that we sing and the cries of our heart would be pleasing to you. Meet us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.